You're listening to the audio from Tuesday Night Class at CA Church, located in Coquitlam, British Columbia. We hope this teaching helps you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus Christ. When they're repeated in the New Testament, they would be considered uh, carrying on. I mean, a lot of the laws were around structuring a society that was a godly society. So, again, the New Testament church isn't seen to be its own society. Does that make sense? We don't make our own little separate society where we live apart from everyone else, where the Jews, their laws did that. And a lot of their laws actually did differentiate themselves from the surrounding cultures. So they took things in the surrounding cultures that other you know, pagans would do, and they would distinguish themselves or separate themselves by not doing those things. So again, those, those practices uh, were very important to make Israel separate but not necessarily in the church. But as Christians, how do we... Decide which one? Uh, yeah, how, how do we approach the Old Testament? I think that's your question. Yeah. How do we approach the Old Testament, Testament and say which which is applicable to my Christian life and which is not? And uh, One thing I would say is I would go with the community of faith. So I would look at what the church over the centuries has considered valid, like continuing and valid, and what the church over the centuries has not. So, for instance... And also separating the legal code. So, for instance, if it says, you know, if a virgin is raped in the city and she doesn't scream out, she should be put to death. And if she's raped in the country, then she she will live. Like, those are laws for a country or government. Our government has its own laws of what happens in rape, so we don't need to follow those. So those would be separate. So look at the history of the church and how the church has said these, these will continue and these will not continue. Also, there's certain sections. Obviously, the Ten Commandments would be considered continuing because it's not their legal code. It's actually directly from the Lord. Would you differentiate between like what is cultic and what is moral? Like a yeah, moral code? yeah, probably the moral code would be separate than the cultic code on how to sacrifice animals. I mean, there are some... It, I mean, they're very hard to... The Levitical laws, if you look at them and then how to apply them, like, for instance, you, you know, suggest redeeming your girls for a certain amount of money and your boys for another amount of money, that's a cultic practice as opposed to... like So that's how, what they would do at the temple. So again, we don't have a temple. We don't do those things. It's more complicated. So if, you have, if, you re, if you're reading the Levitical laws, those are some good questions to ask and go to commentaries and see how people would interpret applying them now. One of the things, too, is that um, historically the New Testament would interpret the Old Testament. Yeah, yeah. So if... if, if the New Testament fulfills what is in the Old Testament, and so it needs to be. Needs we need to understand the Old Testament within its context in order to understand what's going on. But the interpretation of the Old Testament needs to be understood post-resurrection, right? Looking back. In, in light of the complicity of all of the um, compiling of the books and the canonization and so forth, can you comment on both the Old Testament and the New Testament, where in Deuteronomy and again in Revelation, where uh, admonish not to take away a single word or to add a single word to scripture and mm-hmm. how important that is to in light of the construct of the whole Bible yeah and, and in, in the book of Revelation when it says not to add another word or to take away that is referring to the book of Revelation I believe not to the Bible itself uh, although there's some interpretation that there is some but I, I think it, it, it's, it's fairly among fairly strong exegetical grounds that that's what that means now the church historically has said, and that's what we've been walking through today, is that this is this is what... A canon, by very definition, is fixed. You can't have a fluid canon. Um, it, it, it's, this is what makes it up, and these are the criteria that went into fixing the canon. And so by that very definition, we do not live in a... None of the apostles 
are around in Coquitlam today. And so by the very fact of the time we live in and the historical circumstances, it's, it's, it's fixed. I think we're on stronger ground if we go that way rather than trying to draw from within Scripture as a way of saying you cannot add to Scripture. Because um, I, I think you know, the book of Revelation is, is primarily referring to the revelation that was given to John in that time. And I would say for the Old Testament, it wasn't considered fixed until the community determined it was fixed. Does that make sense? So, so once it was fixed by the community, then you couldn't add or take away from it. But in the process of being developed, that was different. That was so. We believe, I believe, that God's um, God led the process for His people to form the canon. So God, whatever, superintended the process, and what was finalized was what God intended to be in there. Well, we're going to talk about that this afternoon yeah. a little bit about theories of inspiration. Yeah. Uh, Nelson. Really? Nelson. Yeah. Uh, you quickly alluded to the point. Alluded to the addition of the Gutenberg scrolls. Yeah. And I was wondering, um, throughout the Bible, we see lots of talk about the sects of the Pharisees and Sadducees, but there's no reference with the uh, the Essenes. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering with the Gutenberg scrolls if there's any. Uh, I guess sort of Gnosticism or cultural uh, addition from their views that's put into the scrolls and if they're added say like, like I'm not an expert on the scrolls there was there were some like documents of how their communities formed and how they were from my knowledge they were pretty orthodox um, and so I you know I wouldn't say that there were things from my knowledge that were found that were like oh this is a really wacky community so well, I think the benefit of the Dead Sea Scrolls, what makes it so powerful, is what happened is that we can look at the um, the the text that we have um, from later on and, and compare it to now these very early scrolls and see the congruity between the two. Because one criticism was always, oh yeah, well the, the Hebrew text that we have may be different from the earlier ones, but now we look, it's like it's, it's word for word. Yeah. There's very little uh, differentiation. Since, yeah. So that just confirms yeah. everything. They're all yeah. online as of last week. As of last week, that's oh, right. Wow. It just came Amazing. online, yeah. Uh, I, was oh. Oh, sorry, I was just um, like I think in Deuteronomy there's a little bit of uh, deviation in the Dead Sea Scrolls and I was wondering if we the Bible we have now is based on the Dead Sea Scrolls or the mm. other kind of like more later found I mean, I'm not, again, familiar exactly with the Deuteronomy section you're talking about, but they did find, like I said, different books that, that were big, longer, or shorter um, at the Qumran community, which is more an indication that they were in the process of the canonization process, where they were determining what was in, what was out. They didn't take the Qumran scrolls and change the, um, the what do we call the MSS? The, the, the Hebrew... Bible as we have it, they use the Qumran scrolls to compare, but they didn't take parts out or add parts after the finding of the Qumran scroll. Does that make sense? Yeah. And we'll probably be touching on this more in the afternoon because we're going to be looking at the manuscripts that made up both yeah. the Old Testament and the New Testament. Uh, J- Jacob? Yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> how many questions can I ask? <laughs> That's your one question. Okay, next question. <laughs> oh, so you have another question? Yeah. Okay. So there were books that were written during the 400, or texts that were written during the 400 years of silence that were not considered inspired by God. 
So to the Jew, what did it mean for a piece of writing to be inspired by God? I mean, they would consider God... I mean, I don't think, again, there's not... Like, the New Testament has, say, Second Timothy that says, all books are inspired, and they're useful for training and reproach, correction. Um, there's no internal sort of summary of that in the Old Testament, but it, like I said, it would be considered um, inspired, that somehow God spoke through the... The, the utterances, the prophecies that came through, and that God superintended the process, that God was involved in the process of the creation of that document. And because of the silent period, God was not speaking, then it could not be considered as God-inspired. Though they could be considered good sort of devotional writings, just as, as the Shepherd of Hermes would be in the New Testament. Does that make sense? So then who would have decided that that 400 year period was a period of silence? The community, the spiritual community. Mm-hmm. So again, part of this is there's a whole area called canonical criticism that looks at how the canon was formed and, and considers the final form of, as authoritative in the end. But um, there is a study of that and there would be that sense that uh, tr- there has to be a sense of trust that God used the community of faith in the process of determining what was in the canon. And, and this is it being carried out in human history. I mean, this is the messiness of history. And it's not just Marty and myself that have come up with it. There, there's entire branches of study that are all about you know, textual criticism, canonical, you know, how, you know, how we understand canon. That, uh, and Jacob, I could give you a stack of books that will keep you going until... Quite a long time. <laughs> Jen, you had a question. I'm just wondering about the the Bible that the modern Catholic Church uses. Like, like my mother-in-law is a lifelong Catholic, and she uses this Bible. Like, it doesn't have extra books in it. it yeah, the Jerusalem Bible does. Yeah. In the, the the authoritative Catholic translation has those books. Yeah. So, most Catholic. Most Catholics still use that. Yeah. Well, if they, if they're good Catholics, yeah. (laughs) 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 Well, no, I mean, I I say that, but but it is true. Like, there's an assumption that if you are Catholic and you're committed Catholic, then you are going to use this one translation, which Catholic scholars have lamented because it is a terrible translation. Like, it's just, it's, it's just not a beautiful translation. I'm not saying that as a Protestant giving a shot against Catholics. Richard John Newhouse would just lament the translation that the Catholics would have to use because it's just not a very good one. Also additional chapters in, in the... Well, that's what Marty was talking about, the uh, the Apocrypha. Yeah. Jackie, you had a question? Oh, I, yeah, I did. Um, so I think like it's given a good overview about the criteria, but it's still created a lot of questions to me that I think objections I would receive if this were the answer I were to give. For example, um, in determining Old Testament canonicity, we we said that we look at conformity, so is there consistency in the writing? But then it made me ask, when there isn't consistency, how do you decide which group of books to go with? There could be ten lies and one truth. That's one. And mm-hmm. um, It talked also a bit about how the extra books um, had themes which were evil, which weren't good. So how do you know which themes no, are... No, the themes were about evil. Like about they, evil. they focused more on evil than the rest of the Old Testament did. So the themes are slightly different. It, they weren't evil books, if I want to make 
that clear. Okay, so anyway, then the yeah. question was how do you decide that this theme, that's exactly it actually, so they're not evil books, but they're about evil, so how do you decide that that theme is not an acceptable theme? Um, and other kind of little things too, like when we said that in the New Testament, it depends if the writing was in wide circulation, right? So then it made me ask, uh, at what point of time was in wide circulation? Because at one point, only a small community knew it, and then it grew. So if you're looking, if you're judging at that point of time, it might not be a wide circulation, but maybe a few years later it would be. Does it get reevaluated? So mm -hmm. I just found, sure. I don't know if these are questions that are normal and that no. everybody, are, mm -hmm. like, I just want, yeah. Well, let, let me, okay. <laughs> so, I mean, as you're anticipating what a friend would ask, and, yeah. and one comment I would say uh, would be, so, what would be an ideal processing of canonizing? Mm -hmm. Like, seriously, like, what would be an ideal way that these books would be canonized? What different criteria would you have used? Yeah. What would be the different process that you would have come up with in order to come up with a fixed canon? See, it's easy to get those questions. I'm not yeah. giving you, but this, I would say that historically, this is a very strong development of canon with a lot of checks and balances along the way yeah. made by the people with the right authority, who had authority, with the discernment of what would be widely circulated and what would be localized, with ideas in their mind that this book was localized, that this is circulated, and so I would always, in that case, if you're anticipating, I would turn that question because it, you'd be hard-pressed to come up with a better process for canonizing without golden tablets with funny glasses and writing it down. But Seriously. Isn't, isn't the Holy Spirit the great mediator here? I mean, some, we've got to bring that in. No, absolutely. But if you're talking to, to some guy in the street, you're, you're bringing in the Holy Spirit who is revealed in Scripture, which they don't believe. So you, you, it, it, you just go in circles, right? Josh. Going back to the Old Testament, uh, you said that there's a lot of uh, the person who is speech, most more saying, and individual books. You've got to speak just a little bit louder. Uh, going back to the Old Testament, um, the process that uh, was used was there was a speech, and then more people were saying, and yeah. then speaking the book. Um, the book of Job itself, mm -hmm. um, I haven't done a lot of research, but I heard from friends who um, did some research that it was actually um, formed before. Yeah, and some people believe that Job was the first book for sure. Yeah. Again, it's not nobody knows because we don't have like old copies to see, but that's a theory for sure. Yeah, yeah, that is very ancient wisdom that was included later in the Hebrew canon. So how do we view the Jewish, the Roman Catholic Bible, then, if it includes a lot of the um, books that aren't included in the Hebrew and the Christian Bible? Well, I would say, you know, in terms of the rest of it, it's the same as ours. So what we would say, those intertestamental books are wise teachings. They would see them as scripture. So I think we would just say, yeah, those we would disagree with them and so would the Jew Jewish people would disagree that those books are inspired. Can you just explain which books? That so it would be there's 12, there's like Maccabees, there's Tobit, Tobit Ecclesiasticus. Ju Ecclesiasticus, Judith, 
Um, I don't know all 12 of them off by heart. So, I mean, they're in a section, and I think that the Catholics wouldn't see them the same either. Exactly, that's what I was going to say. So they're not going to put the, the Apocrypha on the same level as the rest of Scripture either, but they do include it. Yeah. There is a note, though, that is not a canon, that's a separate, and the, and the Catholic Bible does say that it's not yeah, it's not the same as the rest oh, of the Bible, but it is in the Bible, yes. in their Bible. Okay, maybe one more question? And then David and I will be available at lunch, too, if you want to yeah. come and ask us sure. questions. I'll offer you lunch. <laughs> <laughs> David? Okay, um, so my understanding, I might be wrong, um, the book of Enoch was accepted as scripture in Judaism, so why isn't it in the Old Testament of the Christian Bible? Well, I have the MSS, the Hebrew Bible, and it's not in there. Good. Yeah. So. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> so again, maybe there's some sects who would consider it authoritative, but it's not in the in the official Hebrew Bible. Okay, so um, just very quickly, I'll just a, a couple instructions. I'm going to turn this off because. Thanks for participating in this class. If you've been engaging in classes online, but you're not a part of a church community, we would love to have you join us. You can go to cachurch.ca to find out more about getting involved in the life and mission of CA Church.